Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. Today is with author, editor, and journalist Lawrence Scanlon. He wrote a book back in 2010 called A Year of Living Generously, Dispatches from the Frontlines of Philanthropy. I had a great time with this book. I had a great time with the conversation. Uh, Larry and I talk about uh, listening compassionately. We talk about crossing the river, and uh, I'll let you listen in and find out where and what exactly that river is all about. We talk about... um, impulses and about the gap and about systems that seem to get in our way of of long-term sustainable solutions. I mean, this is the things that uh, Larry and I talk about in this conversation have an impact on us all. And uh, really what what this conversation was about was really uh, all about generosity. And the the, the way he sets up the book and the way he writes about it is just, it's so, um, he's humanizing this whole idea of giving back. And I I so love what he's done with the book, A, A Year of Living Generously, coming right up uh, davidpecklive.com for more uh, information on my own podcasting and speaking and, and writing and rebel.ca for other uh, podcast interviews as well uh, coming right up here uh, Lawrence Scanlon a year of living generously well welcome to face to face we're joined by a very special guest here today an author a journalist uh, and, and and a guy who apparently likes to ride uh, long distances on his bike uh, Larry Scanlon is here with us today author of a year of living generously uh, Larry thanks for thanks for taking the time today hi David pleasure to be here so here, so let's here in my in my home in, in your home in in uh, you're, you're kind of east of Toronto I believe right it's yeah I live in uh, I live in Kingston um, on the shores of Lake Ontario, so between Toronto and Montreal. And, uh, yeah, I live in Midtown Kingston, and uh, it's kind of a gray day here, but um, 
you know, the neat thing about a podcast is we don't know who's listening. But on the other hand, from my point of view, I don't have to go to a radio station. Isn't it beautiful? I don't need to put on TV yeah. makeup. Yeah, it's I don't great. Dress up. I could be in my pajamas. I was just going to say, Larry, tell us the real story here. Are you don't sitting know there in your pajamas? I might be in my pajamas. <laughs> I can tell you, I'm drinking herbal tea, and nice. uh, it's pretty. It's pretty neat. Well, that's great. Uh, so, so just to contextualize my sort of my opening comment there, um, you rode from Kingston to Newfoundland in 2013. Yes. That could give us an insight into who you are. Tell, tell us why and, and, and what, what was the outcome there other than some sore legs? Actually, there were no uh, sore legs. Mm. Um, a friend of mine had cycled with his daughter from Vancouver to, uh, to Toronto, essentially. And he was looking for someone to come with him. The daughter wasn't available to just finish off the leg and go, go to the East Coast. And um, I just got interested in the notion of going long on a bicycle, seeing that part of the world, um, um, being independent. Hmm. Um, it, it was really one of the, one of the most um, delightful experiences of my life, uh, to see that part of the world, and especially um, rural New Brunswick. There's nobody in rural New Brunswick, and it is so beautiful. So we would ride side by side for miles and miles, and, miles, and we'd have bets on how many cars we'd see for right. the rest of the day. And, you know, right. I think the winning number was 70 or something. Wow, know? yeah. So um, great experience. Um, I lost a few pounds. I and, bet. Uh, and then I saw, I saw, I saw the country the best possible way, and that is mm. from, from, a, from the seat of a bicycle. I, um, a friend of mine who I just saw last week in Toronto, he just came off the El Camino. Uh-huh. Uh, I was yeah. in the Camino, uh, well, one of the Camino trails uh, in September. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, so it's where my head went um, to, to just that whole, I mean, you, it sounds like you were with somebody, but still he was on his own. He took a vow of silence. Uh, I haven't really, yeah, I know. I haven't really talked to him uh, much about it, but, uh, well, good for you. So uh, a year of living generously, you researched the book in 2008, really interesting chapter. Each chapter is a month out of your life and, and a month of building relationships with a very specific nonprofit organization. I should tell everyone the subtitle again. Title is a year of living generously subtitled dispatches from the front lines of philanthropy. Douglas and McIntyre published it, uh, 2010. I guess I'm, I love the book. I got to say, I love the book. Uh, so much going on. Um, can, can I read a quote? And, and, and maybe and, and it's a long quote here, folks. So here, here we go. Quote, at the end of this year-long odyssey, my radical sabbatical, as someone put it, uh, I did not at first feel changed in any fundamental way, just a few illusions, shorter perhaps. What I felt most powerfully was anger at the disparity that I witnessed firsthand, gratitude for my own health and good fortune, and a conviction that even a small act of kindness can profoundly affect both giver and receiver. That kindness begets kindness, as Sophocles put it, is well documented. Those helped are often inclined, once in their feet, to become helpers themselves, close quote. I mean, I feel, you know, I, beautiful. You know, this is in your epilogue, right near the end of the book. Um, I feel like it kind of captures pretty much everything you tried to do. Where, where, where do you sit today, Larry? I mean, we're, we're seven years so, later. I remember, yeah. I remember being asked after the book uh, came out, <clears throat> how has the book changed you, or has the book changed you? And like many authors, um, I was well into my next projects. Right. I often work on two books, sometimes three books at the same time. And I said to my friend, in fact, he was the same guy who bicycled with me to, uh, to Newfoundland. I said, no, I, I've moved on. But I don't think that was right. I think what has happened is that 
the, the habits that one forms um, mm. while researching a book, it can become lifelong. And I would say that uh, one of the impacts from that book is that um, I find it almost impossible to say no. If somebody asks me mm. to do something, um, and it's often pro bono work, um, I, don't, I don't say no. Mm. I, I try not to say no. And uh, that line about the act of kindness, I spent, so we should perhaps frame the book. So what I did was I volunteered with 12 different NGOs or charities, one for each month of the year. My brilliant agent, Jackie Kaiser, came up with this because I'd been thinking about a book. This this is basically a book on generosity. And I've been Mm. thinking about it for many years, and I tried all kinds of different ways to, to pitch it, and there was no interest and finally, Jackie said, why don't you do it on a month-by-month basis? So I worked, two of the months were spent um, working at a soup kitchen here in Kingston and then working with the uh, Toronto Disaster Relief Committee in Toronto. It no longer exists, but basically working with people on the street. And I, I discovered small things, like, mm. like people mm. on the street, nice. they need to be treated with common decency. So even if you don't, want to give them money, and there are arguments against giving them money because some of that money goes to uh, drugs and, and alcohol, and uh, that's maybe I'd be doing the same if I was living on the street and that housing issue. Sure. But, but simply treating them with some dignity is not a small thing. You do talk about the weather. You, um, you simply engage with them. I, I think many people who are on the street and who are panhandling simply wanted to be treated as other human beings are. So I, I guess it was what I took from the book was that um, there was no small act of kindness. Everything is meaningful at some mm-hmm. point. So, but no, no small act. So, so in other words, the little things can make a huge difference. Yeah. If you, if you, for example, do one of those acts every yep. day, um, that becomes meaningful. If you kind of live your life while being mindful of others who are much less. I remember when I was in. Um, I was in Costa Rica. I was working at a HIV/AIDS um, sanctuary, and uh, some of the people who lived there uh, had come off the street, and they had virtually had nothing. Some of them had a little cubby, and there was a lock, so they had one. They'd have a little chain around their neck, and they'd have one key. And then I, I got out my keychain, and I had um, we had two cars then. I had keys to my mother-in-law's house. I had keys to this house keys to the cabin, keys to the shed. All these keys were indicative of all the things that I possessed. Mm. And so a year of living generously, um, a lot of people have introduced me as the author of A Year of Living Dangerously, but I mm. tell them it's not really dangerous being generous. Um, so yeah, um, the, the, the year I think taught me a lot about how I could be better, how I could be more generous. I think, you know, the keys are beautiful, actually, because it kind of represents access, doesn't yes. it? Yes. I mean, and, and isn't that kind of a, 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 I'm pretty sure I heard Dave Toyson, who actually has written a book called Generosity, mm-hmm. just hit yes. me, um, from former president of World Vision. He said to me once that poverty, for him, was defined as a lack of opportunity. Right. Well, Not, not, enough, not enough keys on the keychain. That's right. Um, well, in the book, I talk about Andrew Carnegie, and Andrew Carnegie is seen as the kind of the great patriarch. He lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he was the one who decided that he was going to, and for very good reasons, which I won't get into, it's too long a story, but he decided that he was going to become a more generous man. 
And he said um, that we should be more generous for our own good. He felt that sharing wealth was the greatest challenge of the modern era. Mm. And he Mm. said, if we do not share our wealth, we risk revolution. We risk the poor rising up. And I I really think that you're seeing that right now. There is a great deal of anger all over the world. Uh, In the U.S., that anger has resulted in a calamitous president Mm -hmm. who has no no sense of uh, fair play at all, no sense of sharing the wealth. But, um, yeah, I I really believe that if we do not come up with better ways um, as individuals, as corporations, as governments, to to share the immense wealth we have in this world, then we are we're, we're headed down a very dark road, I think. So you, you, you actually quote Carnegie and, and yeah. talk about him at great length in, in a few places, but you say, quote, the man who dies, this is Carnegie, the man once famously said, the man who dies rich dies, dies disgraced. disgraced. Right. So, 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 there's a re- so we have a responsibility. I think we do. I think we do. Um, and, I, and, you know, th- there's um, all kinds of evidence from psychology to show that the happiest people in the world are those who give away their wealth. Mm. There are some amazingly wealthy people, um, Buffett comes to mind, right. who do um, who have said, I'm not giving all my wealth to my kids. I'm going to create a foundation, and we'll see if that foundation can do some, can do some good. So that, that's, that's how you do it. Um, I was reading The New Yorker a couple of weeks ago, and there was this really quite extraordinary article on very wealthy people who had bought abandoned um, ICBM, intercontinental ballistic missile <laughs> silos, and they had it's built... It's already funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they built these extraordinary uh, condominiums. Wow. It was going to be their go-to place when the shit really hits the fan, yeah. when the end time comes. Instead of using their wealth to make the world a better place, they've decided, I'm going to try and protect my family. I'm going to hire a couple of guards with Kalashnikovs, Right. And I will, I will sequester in this condominium um, all kinds of food and water. It's just an insane notion that you think that you can somehow protect yourself when the whole when the world is just a swirling chaos. It uh, just reminded me of uh, a very entrepreneurial. Uh, there was a competition a few years back, and I'm sure there's lots like it. But it was uh, architects having to design, you know, um, a, 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 a relief uh, shelter. And, yeah. You know, come up with something that can be built quickly and something right. that, you know, is, 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 is environmentally friendly and so on and so forth. Anyway, there was one shelter in particular that after a certain period of time, you could actually eat it. Oh, so, great. You know, it was right. made out of yeah. edible products. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, maybe not quite the ballistic missile, right. but still, it's it's got that kind of practicality uh, yeah. uh, built in. So what did, I mean, you know, obviously you must have learned so much along the way and so many tacit lessons and, and, and the relationships that you developed with people. I mean, it just would be so profound, speaking of, you know, small acts of kindness and little things, both ways, right? Right. Both ways, I would, yes. I would imagine. Exactly, what, exactly. What, what do you... What did you what did you not know going in? Like, you know, you, you talk a little bit in the intro about some of those questions about philanthropy and some of those bigger questions. In fact I'll pull them up here in a second, I'll flip to it, but you know, um you know, is it good to be good? Is it good to give away money and so right. on? You know, just because Warren Buffett gives away billions of dollars is not necessarily gonna make the world a better place. No, and uh, well, just locally. So I live in Kingston, and um, I travel certain routes to get to um, the restaurants sure. I favor and then the movie houses I go to. And if you stay on that track, I live in um, 
I live south of Princess, which is deemed to be the the more middle class area of Kingston. Um, but if you go north of Kingston into the North End, and I don't much travel the North End, and this book took me into the North mm. End, took me into the soup mm. kitchens, mm. and I realized just what uh, the city is made of, how there is an underbelly here. Um, I started to look more closely at people on the street who were begging. And the first thing I would look at is their shoes. You can tell a poor hmm. person by the shoes. That hmm. is the dead giveaway. Um, I learned that uh, there's, a, there's a parable that I came to often in the literature on uh, community service, um, international justice, and it's the community of it's the parable of um, a man sitting on the side of the river, mm. and a basket comes down the river, and in the basket is a baby, and uh, this man or this woman um, rescues the baby, and there's there's great joy on the shore as uh, this man or woman and their friends rejoice. They've they've rescued the baby, but the baskets keep coming down the river. They keep coming, and finally someone asks the question, who? is tossing babies in the river. And nobody is literally tossing babies in the river, but the system Mm. allows for Mm. it. So when I hear about um, Trump and other governments cutting taxes, I think that is really not the way to go. Uh, I'll tell you something else. I learned um, researching the book, and that is that the greatest hurdle that faces poor people in this country is housing. And there have been all kinds of experiments uh, on both sides of the border to show that if you can square away people's housing so they don't have to worry about where they're going to put their head that night, then they are much better equipped to deal with the addiction issues that Mm -hmm. so often um, dog people who live on the street. So we don't have a national housing program in in this country. Right. Um, many Western countries do. Uh, in Northern Europe, for example, they have they have housing, and they don't have nearly the uh, the, st- the people living on the street, um, and those people suffer from hor- horrific uh, ill health, and it costs us a, a, f- a fortune as taxpayers and as a government to look after those people. So, if we could find decent housing for these people, build um, uh, subsidized housing and not ghettoize the poor as we as we do now, uh, we'd be way further ahead. We'd, we'd, the, the society would be less violent. I mean, all of this is, is documented in the book. It's not my original research, right. but I, I found it over years of um, researching this issue, and housing kept coming up. This is the one thing that we can do. And is it, do you think, you know, you, you say that, you know, in the book that you believe in benevolence, which is, you know, a beautiful, beautiful line, and, 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 and I would say I do too. How, how do you, how do you, and I suppose on some level, most of us are benevolent, you know, as parents and as friends and family members and so on, and doctors and lawyers and teachers. But how do you, how do you preach to the unconverted? Does that make sense? Well, um, I think one thing you do <clears throat> is that you make generosity or philanthropy or sharing the wealth, uh, whatever social justice, whatever name you want to give it, uh, you, this is something that is taught in the schools. Mm-hmm. It's something, hmm. I remember one thing that I did a couple of years ago, I was invited to speak at, um, at Queens. Um, so imagine a room of 100 young people, all of them supercharged and just roaring raring to go off to wherever to do good so those meeting with those people really gave me hope that um 
no, there is a counter. There are selfish people in the world. Not everybody is benevolent. Right, right. Um, but there's a great energy. There is a thrust there to, to do some good, to change the way things are. But, yeah, there's, there are these two, these two impulses that we have. And one is um, the selfish impulse that causes somebody to build a, a condominium in a silo. <laughs> and there's the other impulse, which is to, um, to give away um, enormous amounts of wealth. In hopes that it will that it will do some good. Is it um, is it about teaching kids? To, and I've got a nine and eleven year old Spencer and Victoria, and I mean we talk about these things all the time, and issues come up, and we try to be political and socially engaged at the dinner table, and all those things. Is it is it about lessons about volunteerism? Is it is it about lessons about activism? Hey guys, you know let's let's write a letter together. Let's write a letter to the mayor of our town to say we're not happy about this. Yeah. You know well. I actually don't like the word volunteer mm. or volunteerism. I much prefer the word community service. Mm. Good. And good. Um, yeah, I think I think if teachers um, if teachers were to um, spend some time with uh, their pupils and, and let them know that there's all and once you once you put the bug in their ear, they will really you know if you tell kids here that. Um, if we raise enough money, we can build um, a school in Kenya, and you can build. There's a there's a story that I tell in the book about people going to um, Senegal, and they come across this is out in the country, and they come across uh, a kind of a broken down hut, which has been the school. And these these are Swiss people. They go back to Switzerland. They raise with no effort at all about twenty thousand dollars, and they build this brand new school with latrines and a well and so there's a case where people just going through noticed a need, went home, and um, effortlessly uh, changed the lives of people in that remote village. They will never see those people again. Right. So uh, it can happen at the, the classroom level. It can happen at the tourism level. Um, it can happen at the taxation level. We haven't mm. talked about taxes yet. But there are all kinds of ways that um, we can share the wealth. I think rich people should pay more their share. Um, there's something in the book I talk, it's called the Tobin tax, where if you were to uh, tax at a rate of maybe 10 cents on $100 as movie as, as money moves back and forth across borders, you would amass something like, and this is, you know, this is an old figure now because I wrote the book in 2010, something like $40 billion a year. You could basically eliminate global poverty if you simply uh, taxed wisely on, on money moving across borders. So there's no shortage of ideas on how to share the wealth, but what's lacking is the will. Well, it's interesting, you know, you, so, so in a sense, I mean, I, what I'm hearing, uh, I mean, I've often said, you know, education's the silver bullet, uh, and, and, and maybe that's a little too idealistic, but I'm hearing from you that, you know, if we, if we can start, you know, getting, getting, getting them while they're young, <laughs> you know, changing, yeah. changing the way we see the world, essentially. You talk about, uh, I think it was in the conclusion about uh, uh, an article that, that, that you had read about, um, you know, why, why, and you, uh, why, why is tackling poverty not considered um, a health priority? And, and, I, and I wonder if in 20 or 30 or 40 years, if we started in, in imposing this kind of curriculum, those kinds of questions are going to be the norm. Well, I hope so. Um, mm. The reason that uh, poverty is, is not, um, and, and by the way, you, you might remember that uh, the Parliament of Canada 
passed a re- resolution, I think in 1989, <clears throat> they vowed uh, to eliminate child poverty by some date in the future. We've now gone past that date. Was that, that was, that was broadband, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. Led by yeah. broadband. Yeah. So that hasn't happened. Um, so, <clears throat> as I say, the, the poor people don't, don't have, they, they are struggling just to uh, feed themselves, clothe themselves, and find a place to sleep. That, that consumes their days. They don't have time to form political parties, so they need other people to, to champion them. Um, but, you know, we talked about education. Uh, this book, <clears throat> The Year of Living Generously, was uh, chosen as the, the common reading program book at two universities, uh, mm. McMaster nice. and, um, what was the other one, McMaster and Dalhousie. So I don't know how many people actually read the book, but there was, there's tremendous interest on the part of universities to have students engage the community. So you don't just drop in for four years and get your degrees and leave. You, you actually participate in community life, and that means working with uh, poor people, disadvantaged people, disabled people. So there's, there, there is, you know, um, on, on the campus, there is that Im- impulse as well. It, it, it does exist, and administrations are very keen to advance it. So, yeah. We keep coming back to education. I think mm. it's really, really important. So, what? Do, tell me, tell me. I'm going to push back a little bit here. Tell me about incentive. Tell me about how charity, you know, uh, ultimately promotes laziness or promotes uh, a sense of shame or a sense of guilt. I mean, you do get into that uh, in the book. Yeah, and, and it's certainly an argument against it. But, but yeah, can you tell me a bit more about that? Well, um, there's that expression: they should pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Right. Yes. But they don't have any bootstraps, <laughs> you know. Um, I remember being in a, a park in the North End, and I was there with a little friend. Maybe he was four or five, and I was pushing him on the swing. And um, there was a, I judged to be a grandmother, a mother, and a child off to the side. And one of the children had approached his mother about some, he called it his boo-boo. And the mother said, and I'm going to use intemperate language, she said, don't tell me about your fucking bobo. So that's the language that's being used in the park, and hmm. the grandmother, uh, the, the mother of that mother, raised no objection. So when you talk about um, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, I don't think we have any idea, many of us, of just what sort of circumstances some people grow up in. Um, houses without love, often <clears throat> with abuse, um, there's, there's some enormous number of kids here in Kingston who um, go to school without breakfast. I think it's several thousand the last time I looked. So there's a breakfast program to feed those kids. Right. So <clears throat> those who are saying, you know, they should um, do a better job, that, that charity will simply leave them on the, the, the bread line, I, I really get kind of angry when I, when I hear that kind of language. Because often these people uh, work for corporations, and corporations get enormous handouts. So I, I, it's that old line: it's not a uh, handout; it's a hand up. Sometimes, I I, and, and sometimes, Larry, I wonder. I wonder is if sometimes when when folks use phrases like that, it's it's their way of pushing back and saying, "I'm I'm not really that interested in getting involved," or "I'm already doing my part." Yeah. Or right, right? Is that right. Too, is that well, too cynical? I think it is cynical, and often all they're doing is writing a check. Mm. And what I'm arguing for in the book is that don't just write the check, but if you want to help 
blind people or disadvantaged people, um, go and work with them. Spend some time with them. Go to the soup kitchen. Hang out with those folks. And I think you will see that they are ordinary people, but they come from some really, really challenging backgrounds. They live in often substandard housing or no housing at all. Uh, They have very, very difficult lives. And I think you have to hear their stories before you sort of pass judgment on them. There are people who will take advantage, for sure, Mm. Um, but it's a very small number. Um, I would venture to say that among the poor, uh, fewer poor take advantage of the system than well-to-do people take advantage of the system by cheating on their taxes and by, you know, corporations dodging taxes. Um, So, you know, it's, it's... I think we should be careful when we level that accusation right. at, at poor people. So many questions. Um, can you, uh, I want to talk about listening in a second, and please help me to come back to that. And I'm, I'm making it, I'm scribbling a note here down for sure that we're going to come back to this idea of, of, of um, you know, uh, uh, listening in a more uh, intimate way, I guess you could say, or a more engaged way, perhaps. A more compassionate way. More compassionate way. Yeah. You, you, you've, you, you ended up in a, in a prison for yeah. uh, working in a prison. Not for anything I did. Sorry? Not for anything I did. <laughs> Not for anything yeah. you did. Yeah. Yes, I've heard otherwise, Larry. Yeah, right. Yeah. right, right. <laughs> the rumors, I thought, were, were true. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I can't think of a more difficult environment, and I think if I remember, you, you kind of lay that out in the chapter uh, yeah. a little bit, and you talk about, you know, I never thought I'd be here, and what am right. I doing, and then how am I going to resonate with, with, with folks, with, with prisoners, essentially? Right. And yet right. you did. And yeah, yet no, you, I, you broke that ground. You, well, you, I, I remember uh, coming back from my first visit to a prison and thinking that uh, this is just too dark. I can't, mm. I can't handle this. But the more time I spent, and I spent time in five or six prisons around Kingston. We've got lots of prisons in Kingston. Um, the more I came to realize that um, there's a line that, that, the, that the, the men often use, and that is don't judge people by the worst thing they've ever done. Because um, often uh, it, it, they lead otherwise or led otherwise normal lives. Right. And so I just got more comfortable. I learned there are certain rules, um, certain rules of etiquette. You, you, um, you don't pry too much. Mm. In, you don't certainly ask um, somebody what they have done to merit their being there. But I got more and more comfortable um, uh, two summers ago. I gave a writing course inside uh, hmm. Collins Bay Minimum Penitentiary, and uh, it was it was fabulous. Uh, there are some really really gifted writers who are who are doing time, and um, I I I felt very very relaxed with those with those men. Um, I became friends with um, a prison chaplain, a woman uh, who um, taught me. That um, maybe the best thing is to use the word men when you're describing these people and don't call them inmates or prisoners. Right, right. Um, yep. You know, so, so I guess the point is that you have to sort of cross the river to, to right. get to the other side. If, right. you, if you're somebody of privilege, um, if mm. you have a great deal, if you've been lucky, think about those who are not lucky and just simply spend some face time with them. You really have to engage with them <clears throat> to really understand uh, what the need is. Uh, and I think the more you engage, the more you are inclined to be uh, generous. Uh, you know, you give more, you're more active, mm, you right. speak for those people. When they are denigrated, you speak, uh, you speak for them. 
So, yeah, I think it can be a transforming experience to engage in your community, whatever that community is. So, so do you become a more compassionate listener by, by reaching out and, and just actually doing and actually trying to listen, even if you kind of suck at it? Or, I think so. Or, I do think you, so. or do you have to read a few of the right books and <laughs> go to a few of the right lectures and so well, on? Well, I did read a lot of books. Yeah. But, um, yeah, mostly it was because, you know, in, in many cases, I was um, venturing into worlds that were foreign to me. Right. When I was in uh, Costa Rica at the um, HIV AIDS sanctuary, I was um, I was sitting across from transvestites, and I don't know if you've ever met a transvestite, but these are very powerful people. These are people who are often stage performers. Mm. They um, they command a presence. Oh, and strong personalities, right? Yeah. Yes. In this, yes. In this sanctuary, yeah. they were. They rule the roost. They want to. They want to win the argument. I've noticed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah. So my job, my job at that uh, sanctuary, was simply to listen. Um, I, uh, the the priest, the ex priest who ran the place, said, "I want you to sit down with these people and record their stories." So mm-hmm. their stories ended up many of them in the book, and uh, oh, they're they're horrific stories. I mean the. I know that our safety net here in Canada is crumbling a little bit, but there is nothing in Costa Rica. I mean, if you're on the street, you're on the street. Right. And so a lot of these people whom I was talking to contracted AIDS because they were selling their bodies, which mm-hmm. is the only thing they had to sell. Right. So, yeah, just, you know, for for me and my fairly Rockwellian childhood, this was entering new territory. You say near the end of the book, and... Quote, there is something profoundly wrong with a system that allows for such a cruel gap between the rich and poor in my city, in my country, and all around the world. Mm-hmm. Close quote. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your sense seven, eight years, well, I guess about nine years later now since you started the the journey, gap gap closing, shrinking, getting big? I mean, what, what's middle class growing? What's going on out there? Well, um, there are some, um, I don't want to say uplifting, but positive stats coming out. Um, Doug Saunders writes about this in the Global Mail all the time, how the poor as a group in the world are generally doing better than they were before. Um, fewer people are starving. Uh, more and more people are getting um, micro-loans and, and starting up little businesses. Um, people are, in general, doing better. But uh, on the other side, uh, you've got uh, enormous amounts of wealth increasingly being concentrated in the hands of a very few people. And some of those people um, use that wealth wisely, uh, and, and many of them don't. So, um, you know, the good thing about uh, the American president with, uh, that now in, in power below the board, I don't even want to say his name. Um, <laughs> what does it, it rhyme with? What does it yeah, rhyme with? Yeah, Rump, I think. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, there is a response. There is a reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, my hope is that the same thing will happen with um, with global inequality, and that people will understand that um, we are happier for sharing our wealth as as nations and as individuals, that we are safer for having done so, and that it's just um, the right thing to do. And if that means we have to pay a little more taxes, uh, so be it. But uh, yeah, just share the wealth. That that I guess is the the takeaway from from the book when I look back seven years later. Yeah, I think of Carnegie and uh, his... Oh, it's crazy. Was it... Did I... Okay, now I need to flip back. Was it 350 million, which is about 8 billion today? Is that what he gave away? 
You know, I'd, I'd have to flip back, I, too. I, I'm just trying to find it really quickly here. I think, hang on, here well, we go. Yeah, so between 1835 and 1919, he gave away $350 million, the yeah. equivalent of $8 billion today, yeah. and then his book, The Gospel of Wealth. Yeah, no, and he created libraries all over all over the world. Um, yeah, he was an incredible. amazing man. Um, but if you read his story, you will understand that um, he came to that realize, realization the hard way. Um, mm. He was he was overseeing um, a steel company. It, there was a strike. Uh, there was an uprising. People were killed, and he was so stricken with guilt and uh, and sorrow that he turned his life around. And he decided, I'm go- I'm not going to fight these poor people anymore. Right. I'm going to help them. And so he started. Uh, well, it's a, you know, library. I'm gonna I'm gonna read another part here. I found something that I wanted to come back to, and it is in the chapter where you were working with with the John Howard Society. And right. You say here, and I think it connects to Carnegie's story as well. And you said, I quote, I think I was intimidated by prison, and the refuge of the awestruck has always been to let the other one talk. Most people are only too happy to talk about themselves, their cars, their jobs, their children. When in doubt, pose a question. I do not smoke cigarettes, but I would bring a pack to these gatherings, small tokens to pass out while we played euchre. I observed and I absorbed, close quote. I mean, if that's not a great place to start, I mean, I teach in development at Humber College, as most of my listeners know, and I work in the, you know, the world of development and social change and justice and all that. That's a pretty good place to start, it seems to me, Larry. I mean, right. this is, you're sitting down, you're including, you're embracing, you're saying you're important. Yeah. You're validating. You, you don't even smoke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. right? I yeah. love, I so love that. Yeah. I mean, it was just, and I wonder, I wonder what, uh, I mean, there's a lot here. I mean, the, your book is a book of story. You, you are val- you are humanizing others through, through, through the year, uh, a year of living generously, it seems to me. And, and, and maybe that's what we need more of in a sense. That was Carnegie's tipping point by the yeah. sound of it. Real, right. real people. Right. Well, I remember, um, I'm spending time at a, a soup kitchen in Toronto, and I was shoulders with somebody, and I said, um, when you worked, what did you do? And he said, I work today. I just can't afford to uh, feed myself and pay rent. Mm-hmm. So, um, talk about listening, um, a writer here in Kingston gave me some advice. She said, before you embark on this mission, um, do not judge and do not presume. Nice. And I'd, I had... I'd made two critical errors in talking to this man. I I uh, I assumed he was unemployed, and, and uh, I just I just I couldn't get my head around, or couldn't. I should have asked um, um, a broader question. I shouldn't shouldn't have presumed that uh, that I knew something about him, and I really didn't. And I met many people like that who just could not. They had to choose. I'll, I'll heat the house, but I've got to go to the food bank, or I'll go to the food bank and I'll you know keep the heat up. So. It's it's an awful choice, and again, it comes down to make make contact with these people, and then you will you will see how they live, and uh, you'll be more inclined, I think, to be on their side. I've, I've been working a little bit with the Canadian Race Relations Foundation in 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 Toronto, and and uh, they held a a small conference at Hart House a couple of weeks ago on empathy. Um, does that kind of hmm, is empathy is empathy genetic? Is that in our DNA? Or is that something we got to learn? Is that something we got? I mean, is no. I think I think it's both. I think mm. um, my mother had had empathy. She was born with it. Um, my mother would be at a a party, and she would notice the person in the corner of the room not talking to anybody, and she would just gravitate to that person and engage with them. So 
It was a very small thing, but she did very, very naturally. Um, there are some people who uh, are prepared to share and be kind, but they need to be thanked. You know, mm. If they're not thanked, then they, they get grumpy. So, but I think you can um, you can um, educate people on the joy that comes from right. from sharing. Uh, the psychologists tell us that uh, real happiness does not come from a thing. You can buy a new house and it can seem grand, or you can buy a, a car or a dress or a new pair of shoes. But the 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 that little uh, that little hit you get when you bring that object home or you you're in that new home, whatever, it doesn't doesn't really last. What we remember is shared experience, and mm-hmm. when that shared experience nice. is one that involves benevolence and kindness, that's doubly so. So when I think back on the, the, my 12 um, months of uh, so-called living generously, it was those experiences that were far afield, when I had to travel, mm. when I had to really kind of parachute myself into uh, strange worlds. Um, and, and sometimes my, my partner was with me and sometimes she wasn't. But that those are the ones that were the most memorable. Um, it was a shared experience and we thought we were doing something good. Uh, Habitat for Humanity, we built houses in... Uh, in New Orleans, uh, fabulous experience, but um, yeah, it was doing something with others. So there are those who who don't speak kindly of what they call volunteerism, right? Um, yep. Yep. But um, I think the right kind of experience, um, when it's done with with humility and you let local people call the shots, then I think it can be really quite useful. Uh, sadly, we've got to we got to wrap it up here in a couple of minutes. Right, I'm going to I'm going to kind of bookend you a little bit. Your own okay. writing. You talk at the beginning of the book about, you know, Scrooge's euphoria that he that he felt, and you asked yeah. the question, you know, does it endure? And 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 then you asked the question, which I think is great. Can it be measured scientifically? I think in some cases, some people are waiting for that. But I guess one of two questions: Does it endure? And then, how do we, as you say, your words, weave generosity into our daily lives? Um, does it endure? Um, I think it endures if you keep on doing it. Mm, um, and there, there is science to show that um, when you do something, if you if you do something kind for somebody else, there is a little little um, uh, there's a physiological change in mm. your body, mm. um, and that it. It will happen again if you think about it. Like, like two days down the road or a year down the road, you think about that act, you get the same little buzz. And they, they even just um, observing video of other people being kind has a kind of physiological change for the better. Interesting. So does it endure? Yes, uh, if you <coughs> keep on doing it. And what was your, what was your second yeah, question? And then, and then you kind of wind up at the end of the, the book, you know, basically saying kind of, you know, get involved, right? And then you talked about, you know, how do you, you know, weaving generosity into your daily life. Yeah. Is, are we back now full circle to those random sort of acts of kindness? Yeah, so how do you weave it into your, into your everyday life? I think, um, well, you, you join organizations hmm. that are trying to make changes in your community or, in your, or internationally. Um, uh, you know, I hear about people who are lonely and sometimes depressed. I'm not talking about clinical depression, but they're just kind of, you know, and I tell them, boy, you know, find something that you really believe in. Join that organization. It can be anything from 
um, driving people to their medical appointments when they've got grave illnesses or um, working to change um, poverty in your community. Join up. And many of my friends, many of my best friends, are people with whom I work in in common cause. Mm. So uh, it's it's just a wonderful way to 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 try and make uh, um, a difference in some people's lives, and 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 the payback is uh, is always there. You have friendships, and um, and you, you you educate yourself. You learn about what's really going on in your community, and how you can make change, and and maybe that converts into political pressure. And mm. uh, maybe you do write the odd letter, or you know you. Um, you voice your displeasure at, at how things are because they could be so much better. Hmm. Well, Larry, I, I thank you so much for your generosity today for, for the interview. I wish uh, we may, let's do, let's do part two. Um, I uh, really enjoyed it so much insight. Loved your book, uh, a year of living generously, uh, dispatches from the front lines of philanthropy. It's great talking to you, David. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for your time. All right. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.